0: in the gospel according to Mark. I think uh, one of the reasons I like preaching straight from uh, the Bible and not being so topical is I am forced to have to come across things and address them at times when I am not comfortable with having to address them. Uh, It's also... Uh, allows me to see the sovereign hand of God in my life, so uh, I could be in the middle of something in my own heart or in the middle of something that i 'm trying to weigh out in my own life and then, as all this I like i 'm just dealing with what 's next uh, for what 's coming this next Sunday or whatever, and God throws a scripture that I just needed, or maybe something I needed to just flesh out on paper and and so as i as I press into preaching on books and using using just really going. Uh, through the scripture and trying to preach it in context trying to share maybe some of the depth of what we're talking about uh, uh, in scripture Um, I like it because it's instructing I I think you start to learn the book better Um, I have known pastors uh, who literally have never preached a, a single book in the Bible how crazy is that right they've only done topical messages so they have a, a great little slogan or whatever, which is, no, listen, nothing wrong with topical. There are times where I preach topical, but, like, at some point, I think it's good in your <laughs> ministry to preach a book so you can know, like, exactly what the Ephesians were going through, exactly what the Philippians were in that moment, what Paul was dealing with as he was in jail, and, and you know the context of everything. I mean, I think one of the my most, uh, as we, like, Wednesdays is a perfect example for me. Like, in Wednesdays, that's that's literally how I tend to go about studying the Word of God I will I will find one uh, set of uh, a set of scriptures and I begin to look it up uh, for instance in Nehemiah there's other prophets that speak to Nehemiah and to Ezra because neither one of them are prophets they uh, Nehemiah ends up being a governor and, and and Ezra is a priest but there are prophets that God sent to them that have their actual own books and at some point when you read Nehemiah you really need to stop and read those books as well because they are applying to the time of Nehemiah and Ezra it's very important And unless you study the Bible, unless you have some kind of instructive teaching like that, you really never get that. You you just don't. And so it's important, I think, that as we go through scriptures, we're able to look at the gospel according to Mark. There's a lot of benefits from preaching uh, this way, a lot of benefits from learning this way. Uh, Again, it forces us to get to enjoy some parts, and then there's some rough parts that we just don't get to avoid because we're kind of just going in order. And I like that. I like that about teaching the Word of God like that. it's okay. You want mine? No, this is mine. All right. Um, so for, I think really to, uh, today, maybe this was the sermon my heart needed, right? Um, well, let's just begin. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And, and we're going to walk a few more into, a little bit more, so hold your place in Mark. I'm just going to deal with the first 13 verses right now. Say amen if you're there. All right. One day, Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. But this is one of many traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you. For I vowed to give God what I would have given to you. In this way, you've let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Let's pray real quick. Father, we we hear your word, and we ask that you use it like a seed. Plant it deep within our heart, God. Water it, Father, and may it grow in your name. Amen. Amen. From the very first verse, it's important to realize that some people come to church just to criticize. (laughs) Some people, they only want to hear Jesus just to hear, like, see if something they can say that's going to rattle him or something he's going to say that's going to be contrary to what they believe. Or sometimes people just want to justify their disbelief. Well, I don't believe like that, so I'm going to come listen to how much I don't believe like that so I can use that against somebody or criticize somebody. And the Pharisees uh, and, and other teachers, aren't, they're not interested in learning. That's not why they come to Jesus in this moment. To me, what's funny is they call them teachers, but isn't it ironic that they're not teachable? That seems funny to me. They have only come to see what they can find fault with. I wonder at times if we don't have a a, a little bit of that in all of us. The next few verses go on to describe how in trying to follow the law of Moses that there have been some things that they have added to it. For an example, they have this entire ceremony around washing their hands and obviously their dishes. Can I point out that not all traditions are bad? (laughs) If I come to your house, I'm going to be happy that you washed your hands and your dishes. All right? Um, and, and this isn't necessarily a bad tradition that they have to wash your hands before you eat. But it's not the law of God. And here's where a lot of churches stumble. And this is what Jesus is really trying to get at. Most every church out there has some form of tradition that becomes what you know we call it, like what they use the term, maybe come from an exodus, a sacred cow, so to speak. Every church has something like that. For some, it's the music. I mean, there's got to be a certain style or music that's played, and, and, and for some, it's just what you'll wear. You know, you can't cut your hair if you're a woman, you can't wear makeup, or, you know, guys got to wear a suit, uh, uh, or all kinds of things. However, none of this is actual New Testament biblical truth. None of it. By grace, we are set free from things. By grace is the only way we are judged. All right? That doesn't make those things bad, though. These different types of music, these things that we talk about, some of these rules that they are traditions they've made, they put in place. No, they only become bad things when we make them God things and impose them upon other people. Let me explain it like this. Let's, let's just talk about the, probably the easiest one to talk about Uh, because it's obvious a little bit, is music. It's good to honor God with music, amen? There's no doubt about that. However, worship in many places has uh, has taken place or has used the worship to take the place of the Word of God. And it's caused this huge generational war in what is right and what is wrong and how worship is starting to get. There's all this stuff out there today talking about it. Some like the new music that's out. Some like the old music out. And listen, we've even divided our churches so that we don't offend each other. You have whole services where you can go listen to one style of music, whole service to listen to another style of music, because that's easier than trying to teach them how to unify themselves and appreciate each. It's just easier. That's the easy way out of that situation. Um, it, there's all kinds of things, right? But what we sing and how we sing isn't half as important as our hearts being right before the Lord. All true worship starts with the right heart. All true worship starts with the right heart. When our hearts are right before the Lord, it won't matter what the song is. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not going to matter. But all that we'll long for is that God be worshiped in it. If you want to sing the traditional Amazing Grace or the contemporary version, Chris Tomlin's version of it, it's of no consequence the only thing that's important is that when you sing those words, right, you sing it with a heart that longs to worship God. That's what's important. It's what's in the heart that's going to matter. It's not what comes out your lips. And we're going to talk about some of that. We're going to talk about that. Are you following me so far? Amen. All right. So so like for music. There's other things we deal with in church. One of them is modesty. At the end of this month, we're going to be teaching, investing into students from all around the Highland Lakes area on the subject of purity and holiness through modesty, basically. We're going to deal with what they wear, but what they wear isn't where sin begins. All right? Let me me just be clear about that. It begins at the heart. Sin begins there, and so does modesty. Modesty begins there. By the scriptures, you have the freedom to wear whatever you want. Do you hear me? Let me say that again. By the grace of God, the freedom that you've given to by Christ, you have the freedom to wear whatever you want. When I hear women say that it isn't their fault that men lust after them, they are right. Just so you know, it's not their fault. You do have the freedom to dress however you want, but at the heart of modesty and really the heart of Jesus is to live in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble. Because we love others like Jesus more than ourselves. Jesus loved everyone else so much more than himself that he he died on the cross for us. That's the whole idea or the concept of salvation through Jesus Christ. Us becoming like Christ is coming to a place in our heart where other people are set up higher than ourselves. That our desires and our wants are placed on the cross. Listen to the words of Paul as he wrote to the Romans. In Romans chapter 14, he said, So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way... That you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know I'm convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it's wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable. But it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble, is what he says. It's not about freedom. You have that. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. It's not about freedom. It's about living in the grace of God. Understanding the grace of God. Placing on the cloak of the grace of God. It's about loving people like Jesus loves them. Being willing to give up your freedoms so that you might help others walk in the, in the Lord. I love how Pastor Gerald Brooks puts it as he addresses pastors. This is what, when we go to the, the conference, this is the thing he says. As pastors, we forfeit our rights and our freedoms so that we might win others into freedom. Let me say that again. As pastors, we forfeit our rights and freedoms so that we may win others into freedom. This is biblical discipleship. Can you be a disciple of Christ and not care about the things that Jesus cares about? I don't know how. So you can dress like you want? Absolutely. You have the freedom in Christ to do so. Should you wear the things that might cause someone to stumble? Absolutely not. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because your heart longs to see others come into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And for those already in the church, your heart longs for them to walk in a life of purity and holiness before the Lord. So you exercise biblical modesty and selflessly give up your freedom so that others might walk in freedom. This is maturity in Christ. This is what it looks like. Today, that's called an extreme disciple. Today, that's called zealous. Oh, well, you're zealous for the Lord. Why? Because I practice modesty. That's why. Because I could have all these freedoms that you indulge yourself in, but I care not for these things because I care more for what Jesus cares about. That doesn't make me better. That doesn't make me better. It might make me closer with the Lord, but I'm going to tell you, if I came out and said it, that would be prideful and I'd be saying that I wasn't close to the Lord right off the bat. All right? That has to be a life lived in pursuit. It's not something we brag about. It's because, it's, it's, By the way, if you could do it by yourself, it's the hand of you. It's your hands working everything and not the hand of God working in you or the grace of God working in you. The same could be said for drinking. I talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. And let me be perfectly clear when I say this. It isn't a sin to drink. There is no biblical scripture that calls uh, 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 all of this out. As a matter of fact, there are a few scriptures that imply that a glass of wine can be joyful, uh, and even Paul tells Timothy, medically helpful. The water wasn't that good back then. However, there are twice as many scriptures, if not three times as many scriptures, warning that those uh, that will desire to drink of being a drunkard. It's not good. With so much warning, you would think that we would think twice about having a drink, especially when God frowns on being drunk. In my opinion, and this is just me, it seems that a spirit of rebellion doesn't just exist in our teenagers. We tell our teenagers stuff all the time, like, you probably shouldn't do that. And then they just do it. Like, well, I didn't die. I know you didn't die. But that doesn't mean you should do it, okay? You didn't fall off a cliff. No, no, no. I know you didn't fall off a cliff. I told you you probably were because I wanted to scare you from not doing it. But you're rebellious at your heart and you can't help yourself. You're just going to do it. And that's I think we all kind of possess that a little bit, right? Isn't it just like us to test the limits of grace and mercy? We're always doing that, right? We do that as kids. We're always testing the limits of what dad tells us or what mom tells us. Mom said, how many of you ever done something your mom and dad told you not to do? You think it's different as an adult? Mm -mm. There's just no mom and dad to pop you a good one. Now you learn the hard way. Now you bear all the consequences of those actions is what happens. And again, let me be clear. Having a drink is not a sin, but being drunk is a sin. But should we drink is really the question. I was talking with a pastor friend this past week about this very same thing. If we apply the same model that Paul describes to the Romans, we find ourselves set apart from the culture. That would mean that while we have the freedom to have a drink, we choose not to. We deny ourselves this freedoms in hope of winning people to Christ by not being a stumbling block to them. Here's the thing, like it or not too, and most of us know this. When we hear about it, most of us, especially who have attended church at some point or been a part of a church for any length of time, we already associate Christians' drink as hypocrisy. Even though the Bible says it's not a sin. But the instant you talk about it at all, like immediately it, it, it like creates that idea creates that, it because people, people don't see that as separated from the culture. People don't see it as separated from the world. So it becomes a stumbling block. And while there are many people that aren't alcoholics, all right, there's, there's, it's true, it sure is hard to witness to one if you drink. The likelihood of knowing an alcoholic is pretty good. I think everybody in here knows somebody that's had to struggle with drugs and alcohol. All right? Listen, it's so prevalent that currently, you know, looking up all these statistics, right now at least 60% of most seniors in high school drink. Where do you think they learn that from? I'm pretty sure they're not casually drinking either. They're not even 18 yet. 17, 16, drinking all the time. Where are they getting this stuff from? It's all doing it illegally. And they're binge drinking more than likely on the weekends. Listen. What we do and approve of in moderation, the next generation does in excess. It's truth. It's truth. Right? I think the only good news I had about alcohol as I researched some of this was that, you know, it's on the decline. You know, when, my, uh, when I was a senior in 1991, 80% was the statistic. 80% was the statistic. And so uh, when you 80% of seniors were drinking. That sounds about right in 1991, I'm not going to lie. I think, I think everybody I knew at one point was like that. Here's the thing is, can I tell you, we're at 60% now. That's a good, right? You know what's on the rise because of legalization? Yeah, marijuana. That's the new alcohol. So alcohol's on the way down, drugs are on the way up because we're legalizing it, right? What we said was okay, they're going to take it to a whole nother level, Right? And the, the irony to me, there's so much good. Yes, there's some good stuff that can come from, uh, 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 there's certain diseases and stuff where the, the chemicals that come out of marijuana can be really good for. It. But can I tell you something? We've yet to see what's going to happen there. We have fought a war, which we understandably probably can't win because of the nature of the heart. All right? So a lot of people think it's fruitless. But I'm telling you, what we don't have are 20 years worth of statistics because we've legalized marijuana yet. Let's wait for that one. I think, to me, I can't make a judgment call until I see 20 years worth of statistics. Let me see that. Let's see what our generation looks like 20 years from now once we've legalized drugs and see what that talks about. Can I tell you, when we talk about modesty, when we talk about these things, we talk about purity and holiness and what he's trying to get at, these traditions, these things that we impose or the reason we choose not to do something, because it, uh, it comes down to one big thing. Culture doesn't get to dictate who we are, right? Only Christ and his word get to dictate who we are. To, dri- to traditions that have been developed, while not, not all of them are necessarily bad, they don't get to dictate who we are. Okay, when it comes to welcoming and loving lost people, we have to give them some space to grow. That's really why he's yelling at these guys. I got all these lost people coming up to me, and you're grappling about people not washing their hands? They weren't even coming to church before. They weren't even listening to your scrolls. They were out there fishing. They are out there doing all these things, but hanging out in church. And then all of a sudden, here, here is you, and, and, and you're grappling about them not washing their hands. They're lost people. They need space to grow. They need space. They need time to mature. Jesus calls it grace. Give it to them. And the danger here, according to our passage in Mark, is that we can say right things. Right? We can show up to church and worship with our hands up and not be any closer to God. Right? That's what he's saying here. As a matter of fact, Jesus specifically says that our hearts can be far from God, and yet our lips are able to still honor him. So I can have a sin, wicked, evil heart, and yet praise him with my mouth. That's dangerous. To the Pharisees, Jesus accuses them of such traditional legalism. Basically, it's what what it is. And to the church, this is a warning not to fall into the same trap. That's what this is. From the beginning of this to the end of our passage, we see that what had started as a smart thing, come on, washing your hands, washing your pots, your your dishes is smart, keeps diseases from taking place. You know, I'll throw a little church background into that, kind of from the pulpit, push it a little bit, right? Because it's a good thing. I'm trying to bring out the health of the people. It probably started out as a good thing. But all of a sudden, I, I labeled it as word of God. And if you're not doing it, you're a sinner. And, and I, I don't give any grace to anybody who's not doing these things. We're better than you kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it turns into something completely different. It turns something smart into a legalistic thing. And ultimately, it was a bad thing. And after Jesus deals with the Pharisees, this is interesting. He turns from them. And then he turns straight to the crowd. And the tone changes. We pick it up, verse 14. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come in here. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into the house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples had asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. "Don't, Don't you understand either? He asked, can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness and all these vile things come from within they are what defile you it's not about what we do it's not about what we do it's about the heart behind what we do you have freedom to enjoy whatever music you want but if your heart longs to worship god listen that's how you're going to make your choices right And you're going to give grace to the other people's choices because everybody's got their choices. But at the end, as long as we have a heart that worships God, it doesn't matter what you wear. But listen, when you have the heart of God and you love for the the things that Jesus loves for, you're going to be grace-giving to those. And you're going to change the way you dress and the way you are. That's what sets us apart, guys. You could choose to live in the freedom of having a drink or two here and there. But the truth of the matter is, or you could walk in modesty because you love others and you don't want to lose anyone, right? We have two entirely non-profits set up in Marble Falls, Open Door and out in Kingston. We have the Joshua House because people wreck their lives. I mean, I promise you, if I brought them in, they'd love to show you pictures of before and after. You want to see how far the rabbit hole goes? They got pictures to show you how far the rabbit hole goes. They got testimonies that come out of that place, how deep that thing goes. Guarantee you, nobody there is drinking or doing drugs or whatever trying to win those people just because you can't. You can't. Why? They don't have to. They can still do these things, right? I mean, that's not a sin. So why do they choose to? Because they love people like Christ loves people. Like Christ loves people. So they voluntarily walk differently. Not because they have to, but because they love Jesus. Not because he asked them to. But because their heart is set upon him. And as we draw closer to him, we become like him. It's not about what we do. It's about the heart behind what we do. Our hearts, no matter how romantic the world or the culture make it, is lost in depravity. Truth. The prophet Jeremiah referred to it as deceitfully wicked. Jesus said it isn't the things of the world that corrupt you. It's your own heart here. Matter of fact, he said it's in your heart, your own heart, that evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness all come from. So quit blaming everything else. All right. You don't need the devil to be bad. You don't need him. I promise you that within the human heart are things that make the devil blush. When we see him accusing Job, he's just standing up there accusing people of things that they had in their own heart to do. We're not hearing any conversation take place about how the devil made me do it. No, you did that all by yourself. All by yourself, you were sinner. All by yourself, you're an, an enemy of God. All by yourself, you were separated from the Lord. All by yourself. So quit blaming everything else and everyone else. This is the gut check, I believe, to the everyday Christian. This is the pursuit of purity and the pursuit of holiness. This is what we long to do. This is the pursuit of a purpose-filled life. What is my purpose? To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. You know, I know it's the Super Bowl Sunday. A lot of us have plans, uh, going to watch the game. Uh, I recently this week, I stumbled upon something. I saw uh, it was a, 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 a thing on Facebook where they covered uh, Tom Brady, uh, despite what you might think about him, because I know there's some love hate in the room for him. Uh, I'm not going to talk him up. What I will say is this: this. Thing that I saw was called Tom versus Time. If you don't know, he's 40 years old uh, playing in a game where kids who watched him when his, li- literally last year, I remember hearing a guy who's, oh yeah, I watched him when I was six years old win his first Super Bowl game. I was like, six years old? He saw Tom Brady win his first Super Bowl game. It shows you how, like, he is definitely an old man in a young man's sport. I know 40 is not old, but when you're getting hit by 325 pound linemen, uh, 40 feels probably pretty old. Uh, and I recently saw this small series on Tom Brady where he decided discussed his ability to age in a sport that isn't for a younger man his response was simple and I, and I love this and the reason I'm talking about it today he says while I've committed to play football that means I give up every I, I get up every day and I dedicate my life to it my life revolves around it I've structured everything so that it re, I might succeed at it Tom Brady commits all of his life to the very thing he holds dear and while I hope he feels the same about Jesus, that is really the question I have for you. Are you committed to following Jesus with your entire heart like Tom loves football with all of his? I mean, when he gets up in the morning down to the, everything he's going to eat, to his trainers coming over, making sure that he's getting all the stuff. I remembered at one point they're talking about the throw and they're like, Listen, at 40 years old, there's not much we can teach him. He's not working on how to make himself 5% better. He's working on how to make himself 1% better. But he gets up every morning with that determination. Today's the day I become a better football player. Today, next day, today's the day I become a better football player. Well, can I tell you, we need that attitude in Christianity. When we have that attitude in Christianity, you know what's weird about that? We shun people that are like that. Well, they're a little hyper-religious for me because every time I go around there, I kind of feel guilty. I mean, I sat at the table with Jason Colson this past week, and uh, uh, Alan Williams comes up, and he's like, man, it's the warrior table. I'm sad. I wish you could say that about every pastor table. Shouldn't just be a handful of guys that are the guys that always go out. By the way, there was more than three mighty men. Where are the rest? Believe me, I think I'm sitting in a room full of them. I'll amen you. That was an amen for you. I love you guys. Are you committed to following Jesus with your whole heart? When, when your heart tugs at things that would cause others to stumble, are you quick to notice and repent? Like, Lord, I I know that you give me grace for these things. I know I have the freedom, but I choose not to, Lord. will you help me with that? You say these things to the Lord. Do you talk about him? Do you talk about these things? Do you love those who have yet to find Jesus? Do you have a heart for them? Because, by the way, that's what leads this whole endeavor. Because if you don't, if you're being selfish a little bit, then you're going to enjoy that freedom that you have. If you're not careful, you might enjoy it too much and find yourself back at the knees of Jesus again going, and Jesus is like, listen, I already forgive you. Just keep just watch out. All right. Just like like these are the warnings I told you. Live I know you're living in that freedom I I, I secured for you, but be careful. These are things where your adversary does roam about like a roaring lion. He is up there in heaven right now saying, what about this guy who does this? What about this guy who does this? What about this guy do that? And listen, he's as frustrated as anything else too. Remember the conversation? Well, I can't touch those that you've got a hedge of protection around, God. They're yours. And I love how the Lord's like, yeah, but I know they're mine. I, no, I, I died for them. I knew they weren't perfect when I died for them. Praise the Lord. I mean, do you love the lost? Does your heart break for them? Do you fight for them in prayer? Do you desire their coming so much that you'd be willing to give up just a little bit of your freedom that He's secured for you? Because I'm going to tell you, that's when you know. That's when you know. Like I start when I start seeing that. To me, I start seeing pastors. I start looking. Mm, I need to get them like in ministry. When I see that in somebody, that's my first thought. I need to get them in ministry. I need to get them doing something because they, they love people. They're willing to change their whole life for the sake of bringing people to Jesus. Ooh, come on. At the heart of all of this message in Mark is a lesson really on the heart of Jesus. That's all this is about today. It's not about if you're this, you can be this, or, or should you be this. It's really about what is the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is that the lost come. And... and <laughs> And really, it's a simple, Jesus shows this simple portrait of himself, this, this, this Jesus who fights for the lost, who stands up against churchgoers who offend the lost. Come on, that's what's happening. Who gives grace to their wicked hearts. He acknowledges where it, where it all is. Who forgives them when they ask forgiveness. Who loves them when they don't even love themselves who longs for us to allow grace and mercy lead us into a life of purity and holiness, yet he'll never force us to go there. You know why we don't look set apart from the culture? Because Jesus doesn't force us to. Jesus is trying to love us there. When you start to really appreciate that, that changes you. When you really understand the love of Christ and the patience of God, you really do start, it starts to change you. This is where we say, man, by grace we're saved. By grace I'm changed. By my knowledge of how wicked my heart is, that the, the deeper that knowledge grows, the greater my appreciation for his grace, the greater my appreciation for his mercy, the more I want, and, the, and that overwhelming feeling that it does inside of me causes me to go, what would you have me do, God? And I, Jesus' response is always simple, be like me. Okay, I will model my life after you, Lord. Uh, and occasionally, like any time else, every time, like, according, like remember like last week, any time I look away and I look at the wind and waves for a second, I get human again and realize how bad, like a Christian, I'm probably being in that moment. And I have to go, Lord, uh, I need your help here. I'm falling in the water. But he longs for us to be changed through his grace. Jesus is the one who desires That all of these attributes set us apart and that make us distinct from the world to the church so that we really can be a people set apart. Why don't you drink? The Bible doesn't say anything that you can't. I know because I want to see lost people come to Jesus. And the only way I can reach some people who might be struggling, who really need Jesus the most, the Pauls of the world, right? The only way I'm going to reach that guy is if, man, everything in my life, man, looks like Jesus. Where I love him more than myself. So I, I abandon those things. I have the freedom to I abandon those things. Well, you're not, you don't even just do it at your house. No, because I want to be able to invite him into my home. Into my sacred space. Into my most quiet place, right? In the most state where all my kids are. The place where I am vulnerable, right? Because when you see my vulnerability, when I take you into the place where I'm vulnerable, now I'm really showing you that I love you. Because why else would I bring you there? To let, I mean, come on. If one thing that the world has taught us is how to get hurt. And we tend to like shove every back, shove everybody back, keep everybody at bay because we don't want to be hurt. I, I heard a, you know, pastor friend the other day. Try not to be offended by it, but he's like, I got only so many pastor friends. I don't need any more. You know why? Because that's a kid that's been hurt. It's a kid that's been hurt. Right? I get that. I get that. I mean, that's why our circle of friends gets smaller as we get older. Oh, God asks so much. The older we get and the more mature we get, the more our hearts should grow in Jesus and grace and love and mercy. And we should be more inviting. More inviting. My best mentors, I mean, especially Brother Merle Adams. Just, you know, he probably would never call himself some patriot saint. But just Brother Merle was like... You know, late '70s, early '80s, and the teenagers would get up and they would do uh, their music, which was very electric guitar and distortion-driven. And they would come up and do worship back in Tarot. And <clears throat> I, I'd always see the older generation back there; they'd stand up, but they would just like have their fingers in their ears because it's loud. And brother and brother Merle would just be clapping, not on beat, because I don't think he listened. I don't think he liked any of the music; like, it wasn't his taste for you know for sure. But when I would talk to him, but I was like, "I know you don't like that. Come on." And he's like, "But if I don't get up and clap and encourage you, this is, their, this is how they're worshiping the Lord. And if I don't get up there and clap for them and I don't get up there and have the heart for them to want to, to worship the Lord and, and give them the opportunity to lead, how are they ever going to learn? And so he would get him and his wife would stand up, and a lot of the older generation didn't like it, but I was like, "Look at Brother Murrow. I mean he's clapping, it's not even in beat. But it doesn't matter because his heart is right. If you're going to worship the Lord and this is how you do it, I don't know the words. I don't know how the song goes. I don't know anything about it. I can't even understand if you're actually in rhythm. But I'm going to clap and I'm going to worship the Lord with you. I'm going to stand united with you. And, and, and he was so good about encouraging the next generation. He had a heart that was bigger than just his own, than his own uh, desires or wants. That was one of the greatest things I think I learned from him. And then to take someone like me who is literally half his age uh, or a little more at that time and just bring, and I would just sit and listen to whatever he wanted to tell me. Days of working in the biscuit factory, days of working as an HR guy, all these stories about uh, Christianity and all these other things. And and I think maybe one of the neatest uh, things I saw at, at, at Throughout his life, it's just this constant leaning on the Lord and this constant, I have got to prepare the way for a next generation. Even at 78 and 80 and all that, he was like, I've got to prepare the next generation for the, what they have to do. I realize that the songs of my time are gone. This is the songs of their time. We've got to encourage them so that the songs of the next generation can live on too. I've got to encu- I've got to be okay with the way they dress. That If they want to come in here and turn the lights off a little bit or dress in a way that because he was going to wear a suit. He's going to wear a tie to church. That's who he is. But he was also going to shake your hand if you wore a T-shirt and shorts. He didn't have any problem with that. Now, I'm going to tell you, not every guy at that age at that time in my life that I meet that said, oh, really, that's what you're going to wear? (laughs) I've met a few people at church that said that. By the way, that's who Jesus is talking to in this parable. The guys that come up to you and you're mean to you for dumb stuff. When in truth, Jesus is saying, I love you just like you are. I know that your heart's wicked. And I still died for you. I know that you struggle, and I'm, st- I'm still going to die for you. And you know what? I died so that you can live, and you can have this freedom. The, the, the funny thing about, uh, about God giving you freedom is him asking for it back. He doesn't really ask for it back, but to walk like Jesus is to give it back. That's so, that turns everything upside down. It turns everything upside down. I give you freedom, but you really want it back according to the way you talk and walk. If I were to walk like you, I'd have to give my freedoms up. Yeah. Yeah, you would. And you could live a life that's spectacular, set apart, peculiar. What's funny is we, those are so many things that are painted poorly. We, we We say the word peculiar, and you already think of something odd instead of awesome. Did you not, like, I don't know if y'all saw this. Did you, some of you see the Great Showman movie? You needed to. You know how awesome, I think my favorite part of the whole movie, I've said a bunch, uh, I love the songs. My favorite part of the whole movie was when after the bearded lady, she's kind of come out, she's had her moment and all this stuff, that his kids are sitting around with a fake beard on. His little girls are running around with a fake beard on because they want to be the bearded lady. What made her peculiar made her special. Man, we have got to embrace the parts of Christianity that make us special. One is to be like Christ, because by the way, we're still talking about him. He was just strange enough that uh, we still, there are churches all over this city talking about how to be like that stranger. All right? Pick pick and choose here. You want to be special? Be like Jesus. You'll be an anomaly. And the more you chase Jesus, the more crazy you'll become. You'll do crazy things. You'll start giving stuff away people look at you weird when you do that. People look at you weird by the way. Like when you what do you what do you mean? You could totally do these things but you choose not to. Why do you, why, why? Jesus died so that you could. I know. But Jesus also loves lost people. Jesus gave up his rights for a lot of things, man, so he could win lost people. Paul gave up a lot of things so they could win all. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. And I love how he's the one arguing about, "Hey man, you can eat bacon." He's a Jew. Can you imagine the first time he sat down with the Gentiles and to not offend them? He went, oh, (laughs) freedom, freedom, right? I mean, like, that guy sat down, and he just had a field day, right? (laughs) And Then he's back there with the Jews going, oh, man, these guys. It's like, no, they don't put anything on their food. There's no seasoning at all. I mean, like, he had to enjoy both sides of that coin, Right? And still yet, Paul's whole message is what? I became all things to all men so that I might win them. Amen? Let's worship the Lord. praise God. The Lord is so good. And I think as we long to be like him, he will give us strength to be like him. He will help us to to seek after him and to, to be like him and to see like him. So I pray this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see people like you see.